Welcome everyone to another episode of the podcast. Some quick housekeeping as per usual. Please follow me on Instagram at Felix.Levine. Subscribe to my YouTube channel by searching my name Felix Levine on YouTube where you can watch all video versions of every podcast. And that's it. Let's keep it nice and brief and get into today's episode. My guest today, she is a journalist at the Washington Post and is about to release her new book, Extremely Online. I was super excited to have her on the show, and I think that her input on this day and age from tech to social media to everything in between is super fascinating. Please welcome Taylor Lorenz. Yeah, we're live. Taylor, thank you so much for for taking the time today. I'm very excited to uh, to have you on my show and uh, and talk to you about all the big things that are coming up with you and uh, pick your brain a little bit. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. So I told you a few seconds ago, is there a little tidbit, a little something the world doesn't know about you from what's already out there? Yeah. One thing I don't post about, but it's such a big part of my life is horror movies. I love horror movies and I watch like three or five horror movies a week I watch a horror movie almost every night is that is that the way that you relax yeah I read a thing there was this article I think it was on vice or somewhere like years ago that was like some people find horror movies really relaxing and like therapeutic because you're like almost externalizing like your stress and fear and then other people have like most people probably feel like horror movies are really stressful and terrifying yeah no I I like I personally can't. Uh, I can't get through about ten minutes of a horror movie. But what uh, are there any recommendations that you've uh, that you've watched as of as of late? Oh, my bar is so low because I I consume so many. I watched this movie, Pray for the Devil, um, which was only it was rated like seventeen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it deserves higher. I liked that movie. So <laughs> amazing. So. I guess before we we get into to everything, um, I was able to start reading your book. I'm excited to to finish it extremely online, which comes out October third, correct? Yes, October third. And I guess I wanted to start with where was the initial motivation to you know put together uh, a book of this nature, and and I guess what was the process um, from the inception of the idea to when you actually went went through with it. Yeah. Well, as a journalist, I think, and and sort of working as a writer, um, you kind of just move through your career. And at a certain point, people are like, so are you going to write a book? You're going to write a book? Um, And so, yeah, it was around, I I mean, around 2019, I started to think maybe I should write a book um, and kind of think about, well, if I was going to write a book, what would I want to write about? Um, And so, um, but it it really wasn't until COVID that I actually started um, writing the book and getting my book deal and um, it's sort of like the wheels went into motion um, and it was actually really good timing because I think the pandemic pushed everyone online more than they ever had been and sort of forced them to take this digital world that I write about seriously um, and so yeah I decided I mean I, I got the book deal the book that I pitched initially was a little bit different than the book that I wrote just the truth for so many authors like you kind of start with an idea and then you start reporting and then you're like oh, you know, it's, I'm going to take it in this way. And um, yeah, so it, it evolved a little bit, but um, but it was really, yeah, I, re- I really meaningfully started it at the f- end of 2020. Are you allowed to say what the original idea was going to be? 
Totally. Yeah. So originally, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. So originally um, I had sort of pitched this idea of just like influencer culture. Like I was going to write about, this was like right when the Hype House had launched and I was going to do all this, like a thing about like sort of TikTok influencers more in the modern day, like following a group of content creators and explaining how the industry worked. Um, but then 2021, sort of end of 2020, beginning of 2021, venture capitalists kind of discovered the what it's now called the creator economy and all this money was pouring into the space. And a lot of people were basically like totally rewriting history and trying to be like, oh yeah, you know, like I'm the first to do X, Y, Z or, you know, here's how this industry emerged. And a lot more people were paying attention to the content creator industry and the social media world in general. But they were just getting a lot of things wrong. And so I just thought, you know, I think I want to do like an internet history book that really sets the record straight and talks about kind of this rise of online life because um, I'm a big reader of tech books. I read like every tech book that comes out. And I feel like the story of social media is often told through these through platforms. Um, so like you'll get, you know, the Facebook book and the Instagram book and the YouTube book. And I kind of wanted to zoom out and put it all together and be like, okay, how did we get here? And how did this how did this whole thing kind of happen? And how did this half a trillion dollar content creator industry emerge seemingly overnight, really over the course of 20 years? Yeah. And I think what's what's great, at least in the in the beginning that I've started reading, um, and obviously I won't spoil, but I kind of like the chronology of it and and really understanding um, and, you know, having that moment where it's like, oh, yeah, like I remember what MySpace was or I remember, you know, the early inception of Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. Um, and you go into even more, you know, niche ones with talking about some of the early vloggers and some of the, uh, you know, uh, industries or people that really started those trends. How much of, you know, and I, and I think in a weird way, it's almost like people forget so quickly that those those platforms, right? How much work did it take for you yourself to even kind of dive back into some of those what what's now considered maybe ancient platforms, right? Like I'm sure the gen like the the young generation now doesn't even know what MySpace is or Tumblr or any of that. Um, for you when you were doing your you know your research into writing your book, how much was it difficult or easy to to go back into some of those older platforms? Well, for <laughs> From a reporting standpoint, it was difficult because so much of the internet has been lost. It's really sad. You know, um, there's this thing called link rot, which is basically like these, you know, just people stop paying server fees. Things get lost. Obviously, MySpace, like so much has been wiped off the internet. And so um, it took a lot of research, a lot of going back. I mean, my whole sort of beginning of my book starts with the blogger revolution and kind of this dawn of blogging and even just finding old links. You know, I'm so grateful for the internet archive because... I couldn't have written this book without the Internet Archive. I had to like dive back into so many old websites. Um, but it was so it was also so nostalgic because I think I, I'm a millennial and I kind of like lived through this era. And um, so it was really fun to kind of like revisit a lot of that stuff. There was so much in the book that that I was just like, oh, my God, I forgot about that. Or like, oh, I forgot, you know, this like early era of YouTube, like rewatching all those old. I went down such so many rabbit holes on YouTube, like rewatching all those like viral hits from 2007 um and so yeah it, it was but it took a lot of research and a lot of interviews i mean i interviewed over 200 um people that was actually i think i probably interviewed even more i had interviewed over 200 people by 2022 so i interviewed a lot more probably in the end but um yeah i, I spoke to everyone from the earliest bloggers to like the first employees at youtube to um you know people heavily involved in myspace and 
the book tells the history of the rise of social media sort of from the user side. So it's a real social history of the internet. It's less of a, about like the companies and the corporations and sort of like the corporate narratives and more about like how do people use the internet and how did we change the way we use the internet? And overall, I mean, do you think this is going a little, getting a little sidetracked, but I've always kind of thought that we're in a little bit of a bubble when it comes to the sheer almost amount of money that uh, content creators, specifically, you know, people that are regard themselves as influencers um, are going to be making. You know, I think I think like everything, it's there's trends and there's moments, right? The same way Vine had its moment. Um, do you at all feel like we are in uh, a bubble of sorts or a specific kind of bubble? Yeah, I think we're definitely in a bubble. Um, and there's been several bubbles. Like my book kind of goes through these different waves, right? Like you had that wave of early Instagrammers, right? When everyone was getting followers and those super curated like photos were really taking off. Um, prior to that, you had had the wave in blogging. That's what gave me my career, um, which now like, you know, People don't really make that much money on blogs. Generally, it's hard. It's very competitive. Everyone can do it. Um, or, you know, everyone can, the barrier to publishing has been lowered so much. And I do think that we're entering that a little bit with video too, where like, if you were an early video creator a couple years ago, right, like it was easy to grow on TikTok. It was easy to like get the brand deals. Now there's so much more competition. I also think like AI is going to transform a lot. It's going to lower the barrier to entry even more because you're going to have all these AI creative tools. So yeah, I think it's I think we're in kind of a precarious point. But that said, um, media is not getting like any less digital, you know, so I, I don't think that like we're going to go back to a world that's dominated by print magazines. From an AI perspective, what specifically do you see as um, some of the tools or some of the, you know, I guess, tangible ways that AI can take over um, more of this creative side? Yeah, no, it's such a good question. And I actually, I wrote a piece for Men's Health. I write for the Washington Post, but sometimes I write magazine features. And I wrote this piece for Men's Health actually just about sort of this AI revolution in the influencer world. Um, I think a lot of people think, oh, there's going to be AI influencers. And sure, there's definitely already some sort of like section of people that are, you know, that are just sort of AI generated personalities on the internet. But what I think is really um, the more impactful shift is just this lowering of the barrier, barrier to creativity. I mean, it's little things that we probably use on our day-to-day life so we don't think about, but even just being able to really easily remove the background, right, of like a photo and put yourself in a different background or change your outfit in a photo or just like make these digital alterations to images and video that would have been very difficult previously. Um, You know, I think, I don't know, are you familiar with Zach King, the video editor? No. Okay. Everyone needs to go watch this man's videos. They're crazy. He's this like phenomenal video editor. Basically, like he edits videos in a way that really looks like magic. And I think that like what seems so shocking and amazing now, I think soon everyone is going to be able to edit like that and do be very creative. I think like just the barrier to entry is going to lower so much. I I mean, I'm even just thinking of like podcasting, right? There's all these great podcasting tools now, like the script where you can like edit, you know, audio or video, like almost like a Google Doc, you know, so it just makes it easier to podcast, makes it easier to not not necessarily make a good podcast, but, you know, it lowers that barrier to entry. Do you think that lowering the barrier to entry in general is uh, net positive on the quality of the content that's being generated? You know, it's so interesting. I was talking to sort of like an art friend about this recently. Um, I think I, I think that it, you end up with a lot more low quality content because most people are not like 
you know, they're not they're not going to make like the great pieces of art or like the hit sort of content. Most most content is just sort of like, you know, doesn't have a huge audience. Right. Um, but I do think that you overall it does sort of overall up the quality of content, like um, just on the uh, I mean, the quality like um, it's going to look better. Right. Like if you have an AI tool that can do something very effectively that you were previously doing manually and it was looking really janky. Um, you know, you can, you can have your family photos might look a little bit better, you know, or like you can edit your pictures in a specific way or your videos in a better way. So I think it kind of raises the bar for content creators, especially those that are doing things manually. It's like they have to compete up, compete with these more robust tools. But I think it also kind of can make this thing where everything starts to look the same. Everyone's using the same tools in the same way. And it just, there's less kind of like breakout create creative products, I guess. I think also th- I was reading an article um, that you were featured in uh, a Variety magazine. Um, they just came out with something about your book, obviously, and the, and the new release. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, is when you talk specifically about TikTok and almost, and you know, this is not verbatim what you said, but and correct me if I'm wrong, but almost that TikTok is perhaps even playing a dangerous game right now where they're not you know, uh, I guess anymore, because I think TikTok used to be paying people, but it's not as clear cut uh, anymore, where uh, it's like another form of currency in that people can build audiences quickly. But and I don't know how how you feel about this, but personally, I feel like a couple years ago, that was extremely valuable in the fact that you could grow super, super quickly. But it's almost like having, I don't know, 500,000 followers on TikTok now is like low, like it's nothing. And it almost doesn't matter to you at all. Do you think that TikTok is really going to be in that category of, you know, Vine and Musical.ly and these other apps that had their massive phase, but because they're not able to really keep up in terms of like making actually tangible money, um, it's just going to, you know, fall to, to becoming another another vine which you know kind of ceases to exist yeah i think tiktok i mean the good news for tiktok is it's so radically different like the founders of vine had this like very hostile relationship to the content creators and they were really they they were it was very like elon musk right where they were like i want to decide who's popular i want to decide how to you know what performs well on this platform and that's always a losing game because users decide that right the audiences decide that um you know, and you can push your thumb on the scales a little bit, but you can't, like, you can't alienate all your top content creators. Also, the top content creators on Vine had this monopoly over the, on uh, the app that, you know, because it was not an algorithmic feed and because they were able to sort of, like, game the system um, in a way that no no TikToker has a monopoly on TikTok. Like, TikTok has set it up in this way, this algorithm to ensure that, like, no one TikToker gets that much power over the platform you know like the top 50 tiktokers could go away tomorrow and there'd be new ones coming to fill you know their spot tomorrow like an hour later so um so i think it's a little different i do think that tiktok is facing a reckoning they there's been so much follower inflation with tiktok like i always say this to people but i'm like yeah like five uh, five hundred thousand on tiktok is like five thousand on youtube you know like it's it's so much harder to grow on these other platforms that offer real monetization. Um, and I think if TikTok can crack short form monetization, it could be like, you know, incredibly powerful. But um, but I think, yeah, I think they've definitely like desensitized everyone to audience growth now where everyone's like, OK, we get it right. You have a million followers on TikTok. Let's kind of 
so does everyone else. Um, yeah, I also think, you know, I, I don't think that, well, TikTok is Musical.ly. Musical.ly was founded, you know, and then acquired and then renamed TikTok. Um, so it's not like Musical.ly went away. But, um, but you know, we have to remember it's owned by ByteDance, which is a multi-billion dollar Chinese tech conglomerate that spent literally a billion dollars in the U.S. marketing the app alone um, just in 2019. So they have so much money to burn. I don't, I, I think it's going to be with us for a long time. What do you think? I mean, do you think that for for creators, right? And at, and at every level, really, even if you're like making uh, an extreme amount of money or if it's livable, do you think that it's like how do they continue to? Uh, I don't want to even just say grow, but like stay consistent with the types of revenue that they're generating. Generating because I feel like there's, and this is more outside looking in, and and even in for for myself as well. Is that I feel like a lot of these models for the creators or the people themselves, unless you're like really in the top 0.01%, it, it's potentially not sustainable. And, you know, and that's what I, that I asked the question about, do you think we're in a bubble where like, you know, creators could be getting paid a lot of money for for certain things, but it's like 20 years down the line. Are they? Do you think that they're still going to be able to have the rates that they're getting today in terms of? what they're able to generate revenue wise for for their, you know, their livable income. Yeah, certainly not when it comes to advertising. I think the smart creators nowadays, especially younger creators, they seem to understand this more um, because they grew up in this environment, um, I think. But it's it's more about building an audience and using that to launch a business or launch a product or build a brand for yourself that you can then leverage in some other way. It's not about sort of like being in this forever rat race, right? And some people do. Some some people are in the forever rat race, right? Like they are just going to be hustling on YouTube forever and, you know, chasing those ad dollars and stuff. I think um, what a lot of more sustainable creators have done is like, hey, look, I've amassed this huge audience. Now I'm going to create a bunch of products to market to this audience and that's going to make me money and I'm going to build this sustainable brands. And even if I myself take a little bit of a step back or sort of, you know, put myself a little bit less in the content I still have these brands now that are household names or that are really popular or I've gotten myself a speaking agent and I'm now a you know I guess you know like a thought leader in some capacity um and I do consulting or whatever but it's about sort of like using that audience as a springboard to entrepreneurship so where did your initial interest in everything internet culture tech kind of stem from originally yeah. Um, well, I got really into the internet through blogging um, very much in that early era of my book. Um, I, like a lot of millennials, graduated. It was the big, you know, 2008 recession. Um, so there were no jobs. And um, yeah, in 2009, actually, this girl, um, Kelly, who I shared a cubicle with at a temp job, um, introduced me to Tumblr. And that really changed my life. I, I, basically got obsessed with Tumblr and I got completely addicted to the internet and I started writing about it. Um, Tumblr introduced me. I never knew any kind of like reporter before. Um, and I, through Tumblr, met a bunch of journalists, um, including like a media reporter. And I was like, oh, I was talking to this media reporter and I just thought like, this guy is a media reporter. Like I could be a reporter because I know what's like just as much as this guy, you know? So <laughs> I thought, well, I'll try to write and report on this stuff. And I, you know, at the time too, the early 2010s, it's hard to remember now because YouTube, everyone takes it so seriously. People were like, YouTube is for cat videos. 
the internet is for silly people. You know, it's not worth taking seriously. And I had always had the stance of like, no, we should definitely take these things seriously. I think they're going to really transform the world in ways that we can't even comprehend yet. And so I can, it's crazy that like that was not necessarily the mainstream view in a lot of the media um, where they really treated all these technologies as kind of a joke or silly or things that teen girls did. Um, but of course, now everyone's on social media. So what? What aspect of, uh, I guess, this field in general do you do you feel most passionate about? Is it understanding the the psychology behind, um, you know, what kind of content or social media um, and why it consumes people, or is it more uh, trying to unpack, you know, from more of a journalistic perspective, um, why things are the way they are from you know the top down? Yeah. I, I I mean, I'm so interested just as a lover of like communication technology. Like I think that the internet and tech's power in general is this ability to connect us with other people that we otherwise wouldn't be able to connect with or collaborate with or, um, you know, learn from. And so I, the lens of sort of like through what I look at things for stories and everything is just sort of like how is this piece of technology, whether it's a social platform or some other piece of technology, like affecting how people communicate and connect with each other. I just think that's, to me, like it's such an interesting thing. Also, I work in media, so I'm very interested in sort of like how these platforms are shaping our media climate. Um, just both of those I'm very interested in, like personally, because those are my interests, but also journalistically, it's fascinating because um, you have all these big major shifts happening and all this money. I mean, there's so much money that's entered into the content creator ecosystem it's very rare actually to have a such a massive business. Like it's kind of, it's similar to the explosion of the gig economy. And I've talked about the parallels a lot, like where suddenly you have this massive new form of work that's tech enabled with basic, I mean, the gig economy has some regulations now. The content creator economy has absolutely no guardrails, no regulations, no, I mean, it's like the dawn of the Hollywood, the entertainment industry was the same way. Um, so I just think that's really fascinating and obviously makes for a lot of good stories because there's money, there's controversy, there's, you know, technology sort of shifts and all of those things are really compelling to report on. Um, there was also another aspect and I was talking about it with, um, you know, my my girlfriend's mother, hopefully future mother-in-law, um, who, who's a big fan of yours. And I told you this before we got on on air, but she she was very interested and, and I wanted to ask you this about I wanted to ask you about this as well about you're a big proponent of like owning your own IP um, and, you know, making sure that, especially as a journalist, right, and not having your employer or the bigger uh, conglomerates kind of have access um, to owning that property. Um, how have you, you know, fared with taking this stance, um, you know, knowing that these these big companies have not just power, but uh, the money and resources behind them. Yeah, I, I have. Yeah, I feel very strongly that creative, creative people in all, in all sort of walks of life should own their work and control their work and control, not not just to see, because there might be some financial upside, but just because I think it's sort of important from a creative standpoint. Like I want to, I want to have control of whatever I do, um, and that is completely <laughs> antithetical to working at a big media company. I used to work at the New York Times. Shout out to the New York Times. I loved my editor. I loved my team there so much, but it is a place where 
you are always in service to the this sort of big corporation that owns all your work, um, you know, sort of anything you do, they control and own and dictate and they can tell you what you can and can't do in, in, in everything, even like a side project or an art show with your friend, like they are, they control all of that. And um, so I don't, I don't love that. I think this is why I'm de- meant to be in like indie media because I, I don't know if it's just the control freak in me, but like, I, I just want, I want ownership of things um, because I want at the end of the day to be like, look, if I decide to spin my book into something else, or I decide to start a podcast and then take that podcast elsewhere or do something with it, like I want the autonomy. I've seen how these platforms and these big companies exploit their workers, take advantage of creative people and use creative work for their own benefit. Um, and so I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with any of that. And I really feel like it's important for creative people to own their work. But could the argument be made that, I mean, is a creative a journalist? Yeah, I think writing in general is a creative work. I think that journalism is a creative work. At least I, I think people tend to not think of it that way. It's sort of thought of as this like trade or, you know, um, you know, the seer in service to the broader mission. And that's so true. Um, but I think for the time, and, and by the way, I'm not talking about necessarily like, I don't think every journalist needs to own some like big gun investigation or something, right? That like 30 people worked on. But for what I do, which is a lot of culture reporting and a lot of narratives and a lot of kind of pop culture related things, like, yeah, I do I do think it's important. Um, and, and by the way, this was always the case in the past. Like a lot of these things have changed since the internet. A lot of people forget that like, um, you know, these big magazine features that we're all familiar with that become movies like Saturday Night Live that started as a New York magazine feature, you know, like the journalists used to own that. Journalists used to be able to own the rights to their work. And it's only recently that these companies have tried to like seize control and sort of also control more and more journalists lives outside of work. Um, and again, I don't think I, I'm grateful to work with these employers. They they provide a lot like The Washington Post does a lot for me. So I, I just think that journalists deserve something they shouldn't be cut out of everything, right? Like if somebody wants to take my work and do something really amazing with it, I would like to be involved in that project. I would like to have a say in that project, right? Like if, especially if something's being done with something that I created. And um, so I just think, you know, I think it's in these companies' best interests to shut the journalists out of all of that stuff. And I think it's, it, it's this push and pull. And I don't think there's a, I don't think if there's ever going to be a world where like it's all one way or the other. But I, cause I do think- the internet has changed things. Yeah, and I I think I I agree I agree with you to mostly I think the only place that I'm interested in uh, is I do think and especially the way you see the media getting involved with uh, politics and really everything in the last especially and it's more talked about it feels like in the last couple of years or recent times let's say um, is that there is potentially some danger when you start giving almost too much you you make the the journalism too creative if that makes sense or you give oh well i'm not saying by the way when i say creative work i mean that it's like journalism is a is a creative endeavor and that writing is a creative endeavor right and you you have to think of the words to write journalism itself reporting has very strict guidelines right like you cannot be creative with your facts you cannot be creative with your quotes like those are not things that are creative but writing and any anything like storytelling you do make intentional choices and and that is, you know, I consider it like that. I'm just putting it in that broader field, right? 
Um, but yeah, definitely not like the act of reporting itself is, is, you know, you have to abide by a lot of strict standards, which by the way, like most people on the internet do not do or understand like the level of, of, um, standards that a lot of places have, like even just our like conflict of interest and ethics policies and stuff like that are very strict. A lot of people on the internet don't, you know, the average podcaster is not meeting those levels, you know, definitely not. Um, when it comes to, you know, putting your work out there and really putting yourself out there, um, obviously everybody this, and you know, this is part of the, the creator nature that we're in and the social media, uh, place that we're at in time, everybody's going to have an opinion. Right. And I think that, uh, unfortunately people get absolutely abused on the internet. Um, you know, you've, you've gone through similar things. How do you fare when, uh, for lack of a better word, when you get attacked online for you personally? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a journey like everyone. I feel like every big like content creator that I've interviewed has talked about this and I've covered this world for so year, so many years, but it, it still takes a lot of getting used to. I mean, I think what's been really wild in the past few years is to see how politicized, um, I think since, you know, really since the rise of Trump, but also, just in since COVID, like a lot of journalism has been politicized. I think a lot of people are very aware of the flaws in the media ecosystem, and they take that out on individual journalists. Um, so it's very hard. It's very weird to see this like perception of yourself, like like reflected back to you, where people are like, "Oh, she's terrible. She's X Y Z." And I mean, co again, content creators talk about this all the time, but it's like it's it's human nature to want to go on the internet and correct it and be like, "You're a hundred percent wrong." Like. You're believing crazy lies about me like this is not right you know it's like that comic like someone is wrong on the internet um and so i think i used to try to like correct people and set the record straight and be like no you guys like that's not true or like but actually this you know whatever and now i just think that like most of those attacks are bad faith and i ignore it and it doesn't get to me as much um but it's taken years to get there like it's and it's been really hard it's not the online sort of nastiness that gets to me it's more the periphery stuff that really fucked with me like the way that people on the internet take things into the real world and target people i care about that especially in 2020 and sort of the first half of 2021 when it was really bad and i was working at a place that really didn't know how to handle it often made it worse um like i was i was losing my mind i was having it was really hard i think i was like depressed and it was affecting me mentally um now i don't I'm not as affected. I feel like I went through the worst of it and I'm like, okay, you've done, you've doxxed me a hundred times, you know, you've done almost everything that you, that you could have. Um, and I'm still here. So whatever, I guess, you know, life goes on. And ultimately those people, oh, sorry, I just say one other thing, you know, the irony, especially a lot of people know were introduced to my work because Tucker Carlson did so many segments on me and continues to constantly rant about me. And it's like, He's, you know, yes, 90% of his fans are going to hate me and they're just going to create this villain in their mind about me. But 10% of those people might actually check out my work. And I've gotten so many emails and messages from people like, I actually didn't know about you, but I, you know, ended up looking into your work and I really like your stories. And, you know, I realized that maybe you weren't what you, what was portrayed or whatever by Tucker. So it can be to your benefit too, I guess. To go yeah. How much of the, I guess the the politics and when i say politics literally the right and left um 
you know, is integrated into, or for lack of a better word, like gets mixed up with your work. Because I think now, right, when you have a, a guy like Tucker Carlson who speaks out, and, and I'd seen some of, some of those videos, he immediately is going to categorize you into, you know, the far left, right? And then immediately you're going to have the right that's going to view you as the far left. And now it's and now it's going to become right versus left and uh, and a, a political argument. How do you deal with that? And is there any part of you that ever tries to remove the 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 politics from the work? Yeah, I mean, my politics are not in my work, um, but I do cover the far right because they are very active on the online space, you know, and because they've been very successful at leveraging um, sort of the influencer economy for their own gain. So, um, you know, there are, I, I do a lot of like politically related stories, especially now that the internet has sort of worked politics in this really fascinating way. Um, but your work is going to be politicized no matter what, you know, like, it's like my story on the hype house was politicized and it was, you know, crazy. And all these people are like, oh, she's a groomer for reporting on children and da, da, da. never mind that these children have agents and managers and whatever. I mean, and also like we're so careful about the way that we interview and quote and treat kids. But, um, you know, it's just everything gets politicized and it's a losing game to try to like stave that off. I have very nuanced opinions about things and I'm open about a lot of them and you know if people are going to disagree with me because i think trans people deserve rights like I, that's that's on you you know like i that's my opinion and i think there's things like that that are sort of like these basic fundamental things like i just people are going to disagree with me but it's just that's my stance on things i don't know what to tell you you know i guess they hate me over it i guess um but i think there's other things that that my where my views are wildly mischaracterized wildly mischaracterized. I mean, I talk a lot about sort of content moderation and I have a lot of nuanced thoughts about that. I'm not very for this top-down approach to content moderation. And, um, you know, that gets, you know, it's a lot of projection on the right, right? It's the same way that Elon is, you know, vehemently against free speech and will sue literally anyone uh, into bankruptcy that he doesn't like and kick off journalists and ban people over for saying things he doesn't like on Twitter. And then he goes and rants about free speech. So none of these, you know, none of the people sort of like that are the loudest about free speech on the Internet on the right have, have, a, have a leg to stand on, because especially as a journalist, you rely so much on the First Amendment to do your job. And yeah, I don't know. I just constantly see people saying, oh, she wants content moderation. And I'm like, what are you talking? When have I ever said I'm, I'm the one complaining about my Instagram community guidelines all the time. Um, so whatever, I don't know. And now we're just going to take a quick break to talk about my longtime sponsor in U.S. Wellness Meets. They just recently revamped their website, so everything that I'm about to tell you can be found at their all-new and improved uswellnessmeets.com website. At uswellnessmeets.com, you can choose from over 350 foods raised the way nature intended. That includes 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, lamb, bison, elk, and dairy. They also have pasture-raised heritage pork, wild-caught seafood, and pasture-raised poultry. These are some of the host of foods that you can find at uswellnessmeats.com where the owners are the actual farmers themselves, and now they've introduced a subscription 
food delivery service, and curated sample farm bundles. Choose the bundle of food you want to receive every month, and they'll deliver it right to your door automatically. It's never been easier to serve your family real, honest-to-goodness food without the junk. U.S. Wellness Meats is the choice of championship sports teams, professional athletes, chefs, world-class trainers, and families just like yours all over America. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to save 15% off of every order at uswellnessmeats.com. Now let's get back into it. Does part of, you know, being in this space just because of the sheer, you know, I mean, even when you're giving the example of in 2020 or 2021, when you were seeing like the firsthand examples um, affecting your life and some of the, you know, disgusting comments that you, uh, that people want to write, does it ever just, does that, does the space ever just gross you out altogether? Because I think that for some people, right. And, and that's why I respect you so much for having such thick skin and really, you know, going and doing the work and being diligent about what you do. Because I think for a lot of people, they could, you know, after the threats and the comments and the this is and the that's just be like, you know what, fuck this. I want to, I want to pivot and I want to do something else where I'm, I'm less subject to this kind of, you know, behavior every day. I know. I agree. And that's, I think that's what drives a lot of women off the internet, especially like, there's a lot of misogyny and hatred directed towards women, especially women in tech. And um, I've just dealt with that my entire career. And, um, you know, I just think like, I'm not going to stop doing what I love because these internet mobs are like coming for me. I, you know, I really love my job. I love reporting on technology. I'm extremely, I'm, I love technology. Like it's my biggest passion in life is writing about social products and communication technology and um i don't want to stop doing that just because like these crazy political actors have decided to like weaponize their following or, or like run this wild smear campaign against me i mean it's crazy it's crazy it's given me a lot of empathy for the people that i cover and i think it's allowed me to it's, it's really informed my work in terms of like how i write about the internet but i don't know it's really interesting like so much of when um so much of when you drill down and you ask people, why don't you, you know, why don't you like me? And certain people just don't like me because they don't like my vibe or they disagree with me, which is totally fine. But a lot of people too, I just noticed like I was going back and forth with someone on Instagram recently, just trying to like boost engagement on this post that was promoting my book. And of course these haters are in the comments and I'm like, well, what, just curious, like, what do you not like? And they can't come up with a reason. It's sort of just this like general stuff of they don't like me because a bunch of people have told them a lot of sort of completely untrue things about me like just people on the far right and um and then you really ask you're like okay well that's not true and that's not true so what's the real reason and then a lot of them just end up resorting to misogyny like the three people that were yelling about me in the comments at the end of it sort of at the end of the conversation were all just like we well, are ugly and you're old you're ugly and you're old and i'm sorry i'm not ugly i don't think being in your 30s is old I think about conventionally like, you know, looking woman in, in my 30s. And it's just like that is misogyny. There's also this, you know, people constantly shout at me how I'm too old to cover technology. I'm too old to write about social products. And it's hilarious. I'm the youngest, you know, myself and Joanna Stern, actually, at the Wall Street Journal, are the, not, not just the youngest like women tech columnists. We are the youngest tech columnists in the entire industry. Most Most technology columnists are men in their 50s. So it's just... It's stupid. You have to laugh. You have to laugh because it's like these people get so worked up. They hate you so much. And it's like, over what? Have you ever met some of these people in real life? 
Yes, and they're so full of shit and two-faced. And they totally, they totally cave. Wait, they totally like, cave. Give me a good example. Yeah, I was at CPAC, um, which is this conservative, right. you know, thing, like a couple of years ago. And, oh, my God, I had these people go, oh, can I take a picture with you? Oh, ha, ha. Oh, you know, sorry. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know I hate on you online a lot. And sorry about that. But it's all in good fun. or it's all. And I'm like, okay, first of all, fuck you. It's not in good fun because your fans don't realize that. Your fans are coming to my parents' house. And second of all, like, they're just, they're clout chasers like anyone else. It's like they want attention like anyone else on the internet. I write about people that want attention. That's what I write about. Like, I write about content creators and entertainers and, you know, people on the internet that want attention. And a lot of times those people are willing to say crazy things for it. Um, but, yeah, I've, 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 it's rare that people are rude IRL because when you call their bluff, they mostly back down. Most of these people are completely full of shit and they're so happy to say horrible things online and then you meet them and they, you know, turn around. And by the way, celebrities have talked about this for a long time. I was talking to a friend of mine who's like, you know, has a level of fame that I will never achieve. And um, she was just saying the same thing. Like, you know, people are shit talking her music all day on the internet and then you go and those people want a picture with you, you know, like they want it, they're fans. And it's like, I think a lot of people just, you know, People on the internet say things that they would never say IRL, myself do, included. Do you think that the young people, that they want more attention now because of social media and the fact that they're able potentially to get it? Yeah, I think the internet, I think the internet has trained everyone to be attention-seeking monsters. And I think that the platforms, like the incentive structure on these platforms rewards um, you know, rewards attention. It's like if they want you to post more, they want you to share more, they want you to commodify yourself and get those likes and get those, you know, metrics up. Like I think, I think the worst thing of the, about the social media ecosystem, like the worst decision ever made. A lot of people will say it's the algorithmic feed. I don't think that. I think it is public metrics. Tumblr, for instance, did not have public subscribe follower counts. I think that was really great because you kind of you there wasn't this pressure right to like get certain numbers and i think having everything public views like no one should know how many people viewed your video maybe you should know that but like having that public and having people judge you on it it's just it's it's very i think it's a net negative for society i would love to see a social platform with no public views i'm sure that'll never happen because again the incentive structure doesn't you know it's not something that makes it easy to make money but do you ever think about and perhaps you already do it um, consulting for people or companies that are looking to, because everybody's always thinking about, okay, what's the next big thing? What's the next big opportunity? The same way that, you know, when Facebook came around and Vine and Instagram and YouTube and all that, what is the next big thing? And for you, do you feel like you, do you ever help people try to figure out what it is and, and how to, to get it? Unfortunately, because of my job, I can't do any kind of like consulting like that for companies and I definitely could make a lot more money if I did that with my life instead of writing but I love writing um I but I try to do that through my work I mean I try to like explore these issues through the things that I report on I'm so interested in sort of the changes that are happening I think a lot's happening right now in terms of um I think we're at the end of a certain social media era like I think that everyone is feeling burned out on these big broadcast-based social platforms where like everything you post is public and permanent forever 
And like, it's just, I think all of us are like a little bit more wary. You're seeing people spend a lot more time in group chats, a lot more time in, you know, the rise of platforms like Discord speaks to this, right? Where it's more this community-based thing. Um, also, even things like Instagram stories, like people want more like ephemeral, low effort ways to post close friends content is, you know, booming DMs. So I, I think that's like a big trend in social right now. But um, yeah, I, I try to write about that stuff for my work because I can't really consult, but I love talking about it too. This is why I like going on podcasts to like hear what people think about it, you know? What do you think about in general of the, the word influencer? Because I take, I take personal issues with it, um, which is funny because I, I, you know, I interact with many, I guess. Um, and for like for me, influencer nelson mandela not charlie d'amelio you know what i mean like and granted i understand why we use the word but i even think it's even detrimental to the younger generations younger than me right when if they look up to somebody and that's not to, to discredit the amazing work that charlie d'amelio has done and she deserve you know she deserves what she's getting but i'm saying like in terms of like what are we really influencing and i think that this is a question that uh scares me a little because I don't know. It's it's frightening to think that, you know, this is these are some of the people that we're looking up to. You know, it's not to say that you can't be a fan, but looking up to as somebody who's influencing is it it does uh, give me a little something to, to think about. I totally agree with you. I also don't think it's a great word. It's a word from the marketing industry that sort of was used because it was platform agnostic. I talk about this in my book, but in the mid 2010s, you had the death of Vine. You had people suddenly you had these multi-platform creators. So earlier, you know, you would be known as a YouTuber or a Viner or Instagrammer. There wasn't like this word that was sort of like an umbrella term. And in the mid-2010s, when you had these multi-platform creators suddenly, so they weren't really overly associated with any one platform. And then you had the marketing dollars come in. The word influencer is what sort of took hold. I, yeah, I agree. I, I think, I think the reason people aspire, like people always ask me, oh my God, why do my kids, why do so many kids want to be influencers? I think it's because this we have this lack of um, economic stability in this country and there's not a clear path to success. And I think young people, they consume content from influencers all day that are actually very open with their careers and sort of financial things. And so I think they think, okay, this is a path to success that I can understand, that I've been exposed to, and also that I know there's a lot of money in. It seems glamorous, right? Like you get to do a lot of cool stuff if you're successful. Um, but I think it, it you know, it can also be really detrimental because I think that it would be really great if we had a lot of kids aspiring to do other maybe, um, you know, really essential jobs in society, but but there's no stability in those jobs. And I think people think, okay, I'm not going to go work for some company that could lay me off tomorrow. I might as well just try and do my own thing because trying to do your own thing and trying to be an influencer, trying to be an entrepreneur or make your own thing is seen as more stable because nobody trusts the system anymore. Like no one trusts our economic system because it's failed multiple generations at this point. Um, I think as millennials and Gen Z, like there's no sort of easy path to success where you can get a job, go to work, know that you're gonna have that job for 40 years and buy a house. That does, doesn't exist anymore. Right, but I, I mean, I, I also kind of feel like though that there's another issue where it's like, yes, I agree doing something on your own, um, does sometimes maybe feel more glamorous but I think the, the issue is that a lot of people think that this creator economy is more sustainable and then that's kind of what we're talking about in the beginning where like you realize you realize that it's like the one percent 
that are actually making having a sustainable living off of it and the rest are uh you know struggling to make ends meet yeah just to be clear it's a lie like all that stuff that they believe in is a lie they are going to be let down but that is this lie that the tech companies themselves have sold to this generation of kids right like i mean i just got back from texas from reporting on a story on these camps that teach kids to be youtubers and it's like yeah it's great that they're learning video editing skills that i'm i think is is great but I told you, you know, you have to be very careful that you're not building a career on quicksand where you're like, okay, I'm going to follow this career because this is what I'm exposed to. And I see this, I, you know, I see the top creators like Mr. Beast living large. Most people are not going to reach that level. It's very hard. It's so much work. You're going to burn out. It's, it's, it's terrible. There's no winning in that system. So it's, yeah, I, anyway, I agree with you. What, what do you want on a personal level? Um, you know, because as we've just been talking about for 50 minutes, uh, this internet world can get everything conflated very quickly. What do you want people that read your book or that listen to you on podcasts or that follow you on social media to know more about you that you feel like sometimes it's is hard to convey through through the mediums that you that you already have? Yeah, I mean, I well, I hope people read my work and enjoy my stories, and I also am always looking for stories, so I love when people reach out with ideas um, or tips, but. Um, you said things that what what was that the question things that went uh, something that you that you almost wish people knew more about you that maybe it's perhaps a misconception that um you know things can get easily conflated or lost on on social media or through you know all these nonsense back and forths on social media but like that Taylor Lorenz really is as a as a person oh my gosh where to begin <laughs> um i mean I want people to know that I really care and love technology. Like, I love technology. I think there's this narrative um, that's sort of like tech reporters, like they're anti-tech or whatever. And that's that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I love technology and I write about this industry because I care about it and I want it to be better. And I want tech products to be better. I want us all to build a better internet together, you know, and fix these problems. So that's why I write about them. It's not because I, like, want to take down Facebook or something, you know, Um also, I think people would be, you know, I think, I think again, it goes back to that politicization. I think a lot of people think of me as some, like, caricature that the right-wing media has kind of put forward. And a lot of people have sort of, that that's their perception of me. And that's just, I think I'm a very nuanced, thoughtful person. And I, like, really love engaging with people from all different walks of life, from all different viewpoints. That's why I'm a journalist. Um, it's, it's, you know, so... I like hearing from people. What's your your advice when um, you know if if a young person, young men specifically, also young women um, who have to deal with with misogyny, right? Uh, how you know what's the best piece of advice for them that that if they want to get into this this world that you know exposes you to the criticisms and some of the hatred um, to to dealing with some of the the things that you've dealt with and, and, you know, expediting the the process to, to growing thicker skin, if you will. Yeah. You have to have a very strong sense of self. And I think this is true for any person that ends up sort of having a lasting career online. It's like, you have to really know who you are because the second you get attention, you have all these people on the internet sort of telling you who you are or saying, oh, this is who this person is, right? Or this is who I think this person is and building this caricature of you or trying to shape the narrative about your life. And 
um, it's very disorienting. Again, it, it, you initially want to just go out and try and correct everyone. Um, but you just have to have a really strong sense of self. And just, you know, when people are saying that stuff, just let it, it doesn't affect you because you know who you are. I think actually having a very core group of offline friends and acquaintances and not, you know, not living and dying by the internet is really important. I see a lot of young people today where, like, I always see these girls and it's like, you know, they're hanging out and all their other friends, like they're tagged and all their other friends have the followers and stuff. And it's great to surround yourself with people that are passionate and do what you do and love what you do. But you also, you just, you always have to have that core group, whether it's your family or friends, like a close group that can be real with you and keep it real and remind you of who you are. Cause it's such, so easy to lose yourself online. When you were, when you were younger, did you have this, this sense of self? Um, yeah. I mean, I think I had to, I had to build it up. Honestly, I didn't initially, but I had to very quickly, I think have it. I, I've always had a pretty strong sense of self because the, the way my parents raised me, I've always been like, a, I've not, I've never been like a wallflower ever, ever. But I think it's like made it even stronger where I'm like, I know who I am. And, you know, Tucker Carlson is not going to define who I am. Like, I know who I am and I know what I stand for. Maybe you're going to disagree with me on it, but which is totally fine. And not everyone's going to agree with me on a ton of stuff. I have tons of friends from all over the ideological spectrum that we disagree on tons of stuff, but I know who I am and I'm not going to like change who I am because of the internet. If somebody's listening right now and they want to, and they're thinking about reading your book, what, what is the, the main, um, I don't want to say pitch, but what do you, what do you hope that, uh, they know about your book that comes out on October 3rd? Um, and hopefully that they go buy and read it. Yes, and you can pre-order it right now. Pre-orders are like the most important thing for books. So, yeah, Amazon, Books a Million. You can just go to extremelyonlinebook.com. It's on Amazon. It's on it's on Barnes and Noble. It's anywhere you can get books. You can go to your local library and they can order it for you too if that's how you get your books. Um, but what I, I mean, what I think that people will be shocked by is just like how. The, the true history of social media, again, it goes back to that notion of like, we have these sort of platform narratives and it's we've understood the um, rise of social media through these corporate narratives about these platforms. But I don't think that we've really taken a step back and like looked done. I don't think we've taken a real step back and kind of looked at the social history of the internet and how users shape the platforms. Time and time again, you'll see throughout my book, like these people, average people, a lot of people that were shut out of traditional sort of systems ended up really affecting and reshaping these platforms in fundamental ways. And Silicon Valley loves to take credit after the fact. But um, yeah, I think it'll be surprising. It's also just nostalgic. Like, it, you know, reading it, I think, is a fun, it's a fun read. I try to write things in a way where it's like quick and you can kind of take some lessons away and it's a fun beach read or fall read or whatever you want. Um, you know, it's, it's, and I, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a fun kind of read about the first 20 years of the internet. I, I think almost, it'll change. Yeah, I would almost even add, you know, and and I look forward to to finishing it. But even just in the beginning, um, I think it's extremely helpful too, to because everybody's trying to get ahead ahead of the next trend, right? I think what I really like about uh, your work specifically with this book is that it does also just make you reflect since we haven't even had a second to reflect since there's always a new platform, a new thing, a new trend, a new whatever. Um, and allows you to kind of look at those patterns and why those patterns happen in the ways that they did. 
And if anything, to, to maybe understand, to have a better understanding through your lens, through the lens of a professional who's done the work, um, as to what might be coming next, you know? And I think that, you know, even in 2020, having what we were saying in the beginning, right? Having half a million followers was pretty big on TikTok. Now it's, it's looked at like it's nothing. Your, your account barely exists. So I think, uh, you know, for, for somebody listening out there, one of the, the main takeaways, and this is just from my early on reading, um, is that it's a, it's a very insightful way, even from more of a, from a business lens as well, on trying to potentially understand what's next to come in this, you know, half a trillion dollar economy that, uh, that we're all a part of. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And I totally agree. I think it's a must read for anyone that's interested in like business, entrepreneurship, marketing, like there's just so much that we can learn from the rise and falls of these platforms and how they interact with each other and how, how this whole industry emerged, how we became extremely online. So, um, yeah, people, I really hope people enjoy it and you can pre-order it right now. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for, for coming on, um, spending an hour here. I'm, I'm excited for it to, to come out. Obviously, as people just heard, they can pre-order it uh, at extremelyonlinebook.com, correct? Yes. And uh, they can follow you basically every every major platform if you want to plug those really quickly. Yeah, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, everywhere. Um, I also have a YouTube channel now, so subscribe to my YouTube. What are you talking about on the YouTube? Um, I'm making videos about tech and internet okay. culture. Same stuff I talk about on Instagram and TikTok. And yeah, I'm on everything except Twitter. I'm not really using Twitter anymore these days. So. Amazing. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's dying. But hey, we'll, 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 we'll see. Um, anyways, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I hopefully see you sometime soon in New York next time you're around. Definitely. Thanks for having me.